and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Fidelity Head of Quantitative Index Solutions, Bobby Barnes, joins the show today to discuss the current market cycle. While the Magnificent Seven have driven a 20% year-to-date increase in the S&P 500, he cautions against overlooking other areas of the market. He highlights the Fed's intention to combat inflation through interest rate hikes, emphasizing the importance of understanding the direction rather than the absolute level of economic indicators like the ISM. Bobby also provides insights on the market's potential trajectory, suggesting reasons to be positive, but also noting the importance of considering factors like average stock performance and consumer indicators. The conversation also touches on late cycle positioning, the role of AI in shaping market dynamics, the market's vulnerability to exogenous shocks, the outlook for interest rate cuts, and considerations for asset allocations, particularly in fixed income. Overall, Bobby advises investors to closely monitor incoming data and position portfolios accordingly in light of the hikes still to be digested. This podcast was recorded on December 1st, 2023. I, I want to just begin with the picture of where inflation's going. We've gotten a fair amount of data out over the last week and we've got the Fed coming up. So we just got ISM out. It's showing sort of the same. Directionally, what do you think of the inflation story right now? Well, I think the inflation story is uh, panning out exactly as the Fed intended. I mean, when you think about Fed interest rate policy, the whole point of raising rates is to uh, increase the cost of money, slow things down, and that uh, as a byproduct will bring down inflation. Um, And so, you know, that's kind of um, all this happens with a lag, however, uh, but we're now at the point in that progression but we're starting to see that, right? And so inflation uh, has been trending down, um, and uh, with the uh, along with that, uh, you mentioned the ISM, which just came out this morning. Um, when you look at the, the headline number, it, it um, still in contraction, but it, month over month didn't change from um, the last month. But the interesting thing that I find about the ISM is that uh, the level actually doesn't matter. So it's you know people might look at the headline number and uh, being below fifty, which um, indicates a contraction and it's really about the direction if if it's below 50 but getting better um that's actually uh, very bullish for for stocks and the same in the contrary is true as well where if it's above 50 which uh indicates expansion but falling um you know that actually uh, tends to be not good for stocks and we, you know we kind of saw that over uh 2022 as an example Right, exactly. So tell us, I mean, if we were to sort of encapsulate based on everything that you're looking at and analyzing right now, whether whether you're tilting sort of more bullish um, or not, give, give us a sense of where, where we are in the cycle, what ultimately, we're trying to figure out what comes next, obviously. So we need sort of uh, to set the table a bit here. Are, are you feeling like there are reasons to be positive about the equity market right now? So there... There uh, are reasons to be positive, uh, which I will um, acknowledge, right? When you look at the headline numbers for, say, the, you know, the market, we have the S&P 500 as an example, we're up 20% year to date, right? Which is um, obviously uh, going to drive sentiment higher and make, and all things on balance, make people feel good, right? Um, but however, a lot of that is driven by the Magnificent Seven, which um, we've talked a lot about. And that they've kind of driven um, uh, a, lot, a good portion of that 20%. And so, um, you know, there are things that when I look a little bit deeper, like underneath the headline number, 
um, and say, okay, well, how did the average stock, for example, do? Um, the average stock is still up here today, um, but it's much more pedestrian. It's coming in at about four, uh, five or six percent up year to date, as opposed to the um, the twenty that you get for the headline headline number. Um, similarly, when I look more broadly about um, uh, you know how is the consumer doing, given that uh, the consumer has really propelled the market thus far. Um, on the one hand, uh, we've had several data points come out here recently. Um, you know, consumer spending. Uh, over Black Friday, which was uh, the, the Friday after Thanksgiving here in the U.S., um, came in very robust. Uh, I think it was an all-time high, in fact, of, of, um, uh, of spending uh, that we uh, experienced. A similar thing with the travel. Um, you know, services seem to be uh, very strong. But, you know, these are things that tell you how you are right now. They don't <laughs> tell you how things are going to be, you know, say 12 months from now um, or 12 to 18 months, my typical forward horizon. Um, and so when I look at some of the more predictive things about, okay, well, um, what's an indicator for how well the consumer is going to be, not how they are today. Um, yeah. That's where you get a little bit more of a mixed bag where, you know, things like credit card delinquencies reveal that the consumer isn't quite as strong as we all think. You know, they're, we're seeing um, delinquencies actually rise. They've been rising for uh, over a year now. Which is a long time, actually. I mean, when you consider yeah. when the cost of money started to get higher and higher and higher and the rates were coming through, I mean, it's that, you know, they almost mirror one another. It's quite a long time, isn't it? It is a long time. Um, but in all fairness, I will also acknowledge that it's typical when you look at prior cycles, especially when you're in late, which is what I think we are in now. It is typical to see delinquencies right at the latter stages of the business cycle. You know, typically what happens is off of a fairly low base, uh, you start to see the delinquencies and they, you know, persist uh, over the course of or the duration of late cycle, which can be a, a long time. And so that in and of itself isn't isn't an indictment on the market, um, but it is an indicator of how one should think about positioning um, in what could still otherwise be an up market. So we'll we'll go further into to some of these pieces, but but in terms of positioning for late cycle, I have two questions for you. So so one, I think you're going to say something slightly more defensive quality, but is that in fact the magnificent seven? I mean, they kind of are defensive, aren't they? Yes. So um, uh, you're right. For late cycle, um, the playbook typically is uh, uh, is to be into high quality names. Um, and the Magnificent Seven um, are some of the most profitable, uh, high quality companies in the market. And, and that's kind of what's driving or helping to propel them right now. Um, and what's interesting is it's also worth drawing a distinction between this, what we're seeing right now, and other periods of similar concentration. Um, the most recent being the dot com, where we had similar levels of concentration in, in terms of market cap at the top of the index. Um, but during the dot-com, we were really betting on um, low-quality companies. We, we were uh, over-enthusiastic about the future prospects of some of these you know, tech companies. They weren't nearly as high-quality as they are today. And so as a result, um, you know, that's kind of the, uh, dis the distinguishing factor where people might look to the dot-com and say, oh, well, I wanted to reposition um, differently during that time. But what is consistent for then versus now is that you want it to be in quality, but just quality wasn't necessarily what was at the top of the index back then. Right, fascinating. Okay, so interesting. So let's get into the AI story. And and again, 
where this fits. So the Magnificent Seven, obviously, we've seen this incredible driver of, of many of them that's been AI. It seems like your comparisons to, to what um, the tech momentum and then ultimately the tech bubble were uh, at the beginning of this century. Um, that said, though, is it is it overdone? I mean, I guess, is that part of the light cycle story? Well, you know, the AI thing and, um, you know, I just brought up the dot com and I, I actually do view those two eras as different in terms of the hype. Um, now, in full acknowledgement, there's there's a lot of hype with the AI where. But that being said, um, the earnings are uh, for a lot of these companies actually are proven. And, you know, you, you uh, when you look at the Mac 7 um, uh, year to date, as an example, um, it's some of them have had breathtaking increases in their earnings just over this year. Uh, and so that ends up justifying the, 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 you know, the premium that, you know, market participants are paying in order to invest in these companies. Whereas when you, when you contrast that with the dot-com era, a lot of those earnings were aspirational. They, had, they hadn't earned it yet. But, you know, the uh, expectations were that they were going to change the world, um, probably more so than they uh, eventually did. Um, and so that's, you know, what's driving what we're seeing year to date. And um, the other uh, thing that's worth noting, however, is that it only applies to just them. So when I look at the other 493 stocks year to date and how did their earnings do, um, they're actually down. They're actually down about 10% uh, year to date. And, um, and that's uh, uh, to be down is normal. We, we market participants tend to be um, overly optimistic in their forecasts, but for comparison, what's normal is to be down about seven over the course of a year. And so, you know, so this is a below average um, downward revision in earnings that we've experienced here in 2023. This is really interesting. I mean, let's get to the, the cuts that are priced in and the hikes that maybe aren't priced in. I don't, I don't know which one to go at first, but I know that you've said in the past when we were speaking off air, the idea that there are a whole bunch of hikes in place announced and that are in there up until July um, that haven't really been realized. I think you have another word for it, but you know, they haven't really bitten on some level. Yes. Yeah. So just to contextualize this, right. Um, so Fed uh, rate hikes, you know, you know, they do them in order to slow things down. But they they do so or, um, with a long and variable lag is what everyone says. And so when you look back, well, historically, the lag has been about 12, 18 months. And so what that means is the hikes that um, over the last 12 months, there are about nine hikes that the market hasn't yet digested. And so what's going to happen is they're going to have the impact, the desired impact of slowing things down. But we just haven't uh, realized those impacts yet. And so that's what, as I look out into 2024 and thinking about, okay, what's the likelihood of a reacceleration from here? Um, it's, it's, it's facts like, you know, the, the, these nine hikes that haven't had yet hit the system that give me pause or, you know, yeah, make me rethink uh, or maybe even dispute uh, the likelihood of a, a reacceleration of economic activity from where we are right now. And then do the cuts that are priced in, I mean, this is always, I guess this feeling of us, consensus is that we're in a soft landing. And so that, you know, you can push against that, but that appears to be the consensus. Do we always feel like we're in a soft landing before something bad happens and the <laughs> wheels fall off the car? I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of like the historical uh, precedents or parallels here. So that's a good question. And 
here's the 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 nuance about um hard landings when you look back historically all of the hard landings looked like soft landings before they became hard right now that doesn't necessarily mean however that we won't have a soft landing but right. the way to the way to use that information is is, is to is to really discount what you're experiencing right now so if you are looking at current um economic data or you know you know some of these positive data points we, that we just finished talking about what you shouldn't do then is extrapolate that out and say oh because things are good right now the consumer hasn't fallen off yet um, that must mean we're going to have a soft landing because you know those facts were also true for all of the hard landings before they became hard okay okay and the fed um there's been a lot of fed speak this week so there's lots of there's lots of uh sort of pieces to, to pick up there. But I mean, broadly speaking, the Fed obviously wants a soft landing, but but they're willing to finish the job and, and have it end in a hard landing if it has to be. I mean, I guess that's the other piece that we sort of wonder about. So from the Fed perspective, I think they're going to be concerned with cutting too early. And so the, the current uh, futures, Fed futures, are calling for the first cut to be in March. I think that just behaviorally, they're going to want to be have a little bit more certainty that they have um, won the battle on this inflation monster. Um, and so, you know, that would then, if, if correct, I would call for um, uh, an elongated pause, right? So the last hike happened in, um, I think, July of this year. And so I think the more likely scenarios, we get to March and they can, well, well first of all, we got to get through December. The Fed is meeting next week. Um, I think the likelihood is that they'll probably continue the pause. Uh, but then once you get into March, that I think the more likely outcome versus what's being priced in right now is, is a pause at that meeting as well. Um, but, you know, aspirationally, the Fed would like to engineer a soft landing. But the, the what makes that so hard in my mind is, is the following analogy, right? Imagine you're driving home from work and your car is one such that when you turn the wheel left, the car turns left, but it doesn't do so for another three to four minutes. And so that would then make it very hard to eventually pull into your driveway. That's kind of what the Fed is working with. They've got these tools and they, you know, they do the hike, but then the hike doesn't happen or have its intended impact for 12 months. And so the, the idea of like landing that plane softly, it's not that it's impossible, but it's really hard given that feedback mechanism. That's a great analogy. Oh, it's kind of scary because you feel like there's a crash in there. But yes, I mean, it's brilliant. As you say, it's like it's coming. You just don't know exactly when that when that comes home to roost. So what does all of what you're saying right now in terms of historical precedents, you know, where the tools start to take root in the economy one way or the other? What does it mean for the broadening out of the equity market one way or the other? Yeah, so. I'll, and I'll give the um, uh, both cases, right? The the bull and the bear. Um, you know, if if you believe that economic activity is going to reaccelerate, then you should expect or to see a broadening out of um, uh, of the returns across stocks. Uh, that essentially means that you want to go down um, further in cap. It's, it's not just going to be the max seven, max seven uh, that's going to be the, they're going to win. Um, you're going to get more participation from the mid caps and the small caps. Uh, similarly, you would get more participation from the value stocks. Um, all that being said, that's actually not the side of the fence that I'm on. Um, I'm on the other side where in thinking about the digestion of uh, these rate hikes that we've had, 
uh, I think that you're going to, uh, we're more likely to get a continued slowing of the uh, economic activity. And so in that environment, then what you um, are likely to get is a continuation of the narrow market that we've had. So you would not get a broadening out. Uh, what has worked thus far is going to be more likely to continue to work, uh, which is, you know, quality, quality um, more broadly speaking. But then, um, you know, more specifically, like, you know, we've talked about the Max 7 and how they are expressions of quality. You know, that's, you know, likely to be uh, persistent uh, as we move, continue to move forward from here. That's fascinating. Really, really fascinating. And uh, there's there's a couple of questions coming in. I, I would like to sort of ask a little bit more on the fork in the road that you've just described, sort of the bullish or or perhaps something that's less bullish. Um, the contracting growth, the reaccelerating growth we're seeing, it's, it's always that question of you want the inflation to come down, but you don't want to kill the growth all at the same time. Where do you see yeah. this fork in the road? Like, are we right at the beginning of it? Or or is there some ability to to sort of figure out which way this is starting I think we to are. Um, yes, I think we are at the beginning of it. But I also want to clarify my position for thinking about this fork. The, the right side, side of that fork is very clear. It's economic reacceleration. Everything's great. You know, it's a, it's a party. The left side of the fork, however, has two parts to it. And, and just to be clear, because, uh, you know, when I say I'm, um, um, you know, defensive, it's, it's not defensive in a way that, um, you know, the market can't still go up. Because on that other side of the fork, you've got, you said it, you've got contracting growth is on that side. And that actually is recession. But you also have slowing growth, which um, is, um, the market still can rise and has risen in in slowing growth environments. But what that the distinction, however, is that your playbook. So the market still goes up, but the playbook for how you want to be invested um, within equities is different from the playbook where the market's going up, but it's a reaccelerating economy. Okay. You actually want to be risk on in terms of your positioning and factors, whereas in the slowing growth but positive growth nonetheless, that's where you actually want to be in quality. Um, and, and the reason why I don't feel like I need to, on that, on that other side of the fork, I need to distinguish between slowing growth and recession is that the playbook for factor positioning is actually very similar between the two. Um, okay. Quality is, is my, you know, uh, number one preference, which works in both. Uh, momentum also uh, works in both. But the real, the real distinguishing factor between the two is, is whether or not you position into low ball. Okay, because that's that's what I was just going to ask you. Like, look at that November we just had. Holy smokes! Uh, and momentum was all over the place. But if you're looking for the low vol piece, okay, take us there. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so look at November. Um, the the market was up a lot in November. I think almost ten percent uh, for the S and P yeah. five hundred. And so and so low vol doesn't participate as much uh, or really at all uh, in a strong up market like that. Um, but whereas quality actually does. And so you get that participation uh, in what's an up market, um, but nevertheless, from an economic standpoint, a slowing growth uh, uh, environment. Okay, that's really fascinating. Um, we've had a few, it's been a fascinating year. Again, you and I were just talking just a little bit before, before I joined everyone here, but um, it's been a fascinating year if you look at what the market has absorbed throughout the year. And there have been a number of exogenous shocks, there's been geopolitical issues, um, there have been 
a mini banking crisis. I mean, all kinds of things. And then we have November, which was full risk on in, in a lot of areas. Um, what, what do you think about the vulnerability of the market to an exogenous shock? I mean, there, there are always ones we haven't thought of. But is there some resilience in the marketplace right now, would you say? So that's a tough one, Pamela, and for the following reason, um, you know, exogenous shocks, you know, there's just no way to, to forecast yeah. it. COVID was an exogenous shock. We, we shut the world down at a moment's notice. Yeah. And so on some level, you just can't plan for, for those. You have some humility about talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but where it, it, it does require some thought, however, and some readiness, would be that uh, you know you you briefly mentioned the, the, the mini banking crisis that we had um, earlier this year. You know that wasn't an exogenous shock. I mean that actually uh, was di a direct result of some of the Fed hiking that occurred. Uh, what the problem being is that again the I call it um, the bucket drop, where in a kid's splash park, you know there's a uh, bucket in the sky and it fills up with water and nothing really happens until it does. And that's kind of what happened with the, the banking crisis. Like it's, it was all driven by fundamentals. You know, they're, they, they got ended up upside down on some of their investments in treasuries because the value of those treasuries on their balance sheets um, went down with their Fed rate hikes. Um, and, you know, everything was fine up until right when it wasn't. <laughs> and then all of a sudden over the weekend, several banks uh, went out of business. So that's what you really need to be sensitive to when you're in late cycle is that, um, you know, things, look fine until they're not, but then when they're not fine, they unwind very quickly without a whole lot of notice. Right. So, and, and this takes us back to the discussion of what the cuts being priced in right now are, because there is sort of within the Goldilocks of the Fed will think, you know what, that's enough, we're fine. We can pull back from these high rates because things are fine. And we don't need such high rates. We've got inflation going down. And then there's the reason that cuts are priced in, which I think you've pointed to already, um, is because things are not going well. They need to cut, 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 you know, and sort of the bucket drip on from that perspective. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. Those are the two ways to think about the cuts. But from a uh, risk management perspective, um, you know, the, the former, which is kind of that, that Goldilocks scenario, um, you know, there's... There's really, if that occurs, there's really no downside. Right? You're, you're not getting blindsided by a Goldilocks scenario. Um, and so if you're, from a risk management perspective, wanting to protect your downside from being you know, blindsided, because you, unless you have a clairvoyance into which type of cut it's going to be, one that's you know, because it's, it's a Goldilocks soft landing or one where the uh, economic activity is forcing the Fed's hand to re-stimulate the economy, it's really that latter one that, that you actually need to have some sort of protection in your portfolio. And hence, uh, because there is material downside, if that's uh, what's driving uh, the cuts, if and when they happen. Right, right, fascinating. From a global positioning perspective, um, what do you think? Is it still US exceptionalism, North American fortress? How, how do you like to look at this? So globally gets very interesting and nuanced. Um, and I, my prescription would be um, to uh, to overweight the U.S. based on uh, you call it exceptionalism, but to you know, which is um, really an expression of the earnings power and that that the U.S. companies have versus their global peers. 
right? And so if we kind of put that into context, I, I talked about how earnings have risen for like the Mac 7, um, which are a large part of the S&P 500. There aren't really Mac 7 equivalents when I look across the globe, right? You don't, um, you know, you got the S&P, let's take a couple of indices. You got the S&P 500, you got the TSX in Canada, and you got, you know, EFA, which is kind of, you know, developed uh, international and then emerging markets. Uh, the return on equity for the S&P is just higher than all those other markets that I described. And that's what makes it exceptional because it's because the ROE is higher, it's, it makes it higher quality. Those companies are a bit more durable, a bit more resilient. Um, and, and that's why, um, you know, my bias um, in, you know, a, a, a slowing growth globally, my bias would be to um, tilt more towards the U.S. in that environment. Whereas if things, you know, to, just to outline the other side of it, if, if someone thinks differently, if you believe that you're going to have a global reacceleration in economic activity, then you want to go to those uh, areas globally that are more economically sensitive. And so emerging markets, as an example, um, has got a bit more beta, um, yeah. more leverage to things like materials, like things that do very well when you've got a reacceleration in, uh, in the economy. Um, do you think that the interest rate cut anticipation is overblown? I think you mentioned March, but anything to add to that? Yeah, it's it's. I, I do think it, um, it's a little bit overblown, especially the March that I mentioned before. Um, but then when you look at the uh, expectations uh, further out into the year, um, they, it's, it, it, it does, it, there, there is a bit of a head scratcher in that I think by the end of the year, the, the current market participants are pricing in um, several cuts. I think it's three to four. And where I find that surprising is that um, if I had to guess, I would think that there are more people in the soft landing camp right now than in the hard landing camp um, for the reason being that um, hard landings look soft before they are hard. So I think, you know, on balance, that's, that, that's a reasonable um, uh, expectation for people to be thinking based off the incoming data. Uh, but that being said, you have to balance that well with the reality of, you know, in what world does a Fed cut four times in such a short period? And it's, it's, it's that's in, in a, a world where things are falling off, <laughs> you know, very quickly. Okay, so just as we close out, I want to just ask you a little bit about the place for with high yields bonds uh, with some of the strategies in terms of asset allocation, how you look at that. Yeah, so I think we're at a place. So with let's take our 6040, you know, yeah. um, we're, we're at an interesting place with the 6040 now, because, you know, you go back a couple of years ago, you had the, the 40 piece of it, which was your fixed income, which is near zero. Um, and so it really wasn't offering the investor much. Um, rates have come up um, a lot, and so the um, their fixed income part of your portfolio looks a lot more interesting today, and you can get you know pretty decent yields. Um, uh, that has come though at the expense of some diversification, where the the two the, your bonds and your equities used to move in opposite directions, and so you you know you would get downside protection, for example, with your with your fixed income. But I think over the course of the last 12, 18 months. The equities and the fixed income have actually moved a lot in the same direction. Um, all that being said, when I look at out to the 2024 and 2025, I think there's a um, much more compelling case for the fixed income part of your portfolio that you haven't had in a very long time. And if, in fact, you do get those uh, some cuts by the Federal Reserve, if you go, if you if for the fixed income part of your portfolio, if you've got more longer duration. Uh, uh, holdings in there, call it, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30 year treasuries, 
those will actually do very well. I mean, when you look historically, you know, by very, just to put numbers around it, you know, if I look at, say, the 20-year Treasury, uh, in periods of Fed rate cuts, uh, that part of your portfolio can be up as much as 20%. Right. So there you go. It's, inter- it's an interesting asset allocation time, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating. It kind of, it kind of comes back to that. So any just quick final thought to leave with investors today, Bobby Barnes, before we let you go? Yes, I would say, you know, keep an eye on the incoming data. Again, remember that we've got nine hikes that we all still have to digest. And so as a result of that, um, you know, position your portfolio accordingly. So to help ride out uh, the digestion of, um, of those market impacts. Fantastic. It's great to catch up with you and, and really get insight into how you are looking at the market and where certain different types of factors really come into play for, for um, making sure we're doing what we need to do at this point in the cycle. Have, have a great weekend and thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks for, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. On fidelity.ca, you can also find more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.